Weather today in the ground. I love you so badly. I could... They're solid plastic, so don't settle for imitation. But the senator, while insisting he was not intoxicated, could not explain his nudity. <laughs> Good evening, this is Anne Benton, and this is the best of an Alan Smithy podcast. You give us 91 minutes and we'll give you 91 minutes of words. Tonight's double feature episode investigates the very edge of sanity and the pressures on the dutiful son. This episode, from the 19th of February, 2010, discusses Richard Franklin's 1983 Psycho 2 and Gus Van Sant's 1998 shot-for-shot remake of Psycho 1. Welcome to an Alan Smithy podcast. My name is Matt, and I write at cinemachine.blogspot.com. And I'm Andrew, and I write at thestopbutton.com. And this is our podcast where we talk about one good movie and one bad movie for about one hour. And uh, this episode is a special. It's the Psycho special. We're going to talk about Psycho 2, the 1983 sequel um, starring Anthony Perkins and directed by Richard Franklin. And uh, the infamous 1998 remake, uh, supposedly shot-for-shot remake, although not really, directed by respected art house director Gus Van Sant. And we're going to go chronologically. We're going to start off with Psycho 2. So um, we've both seen this before. I used to see this a lot on TV, along with Psycho two, uh, 3 and 4, um, because they used to run it on USA and the Sci-Fi Channel a lot. And it... Was, I mean, I always liked it even as a kid, even though I um, I sort of rec- realized this as a kid, but it really hit me um, watching it this time around, is that even though Psycho 2 is really good, it's a really sad movie. It, it's really, it's really kind of sad because, um, well, it has completely, it was written by Tom Holland, who um, wrote and directed uh, Fright Night, which is a really cool movie, and also um, directed Child's Play, so he's... He's got. Uh, he had some more genre credits to his name after this one, and he wrote a pretty good script. And you know, I mean, it had to be a pretty good script to get Anthony Hopkins, or excuse me, Anthony Perkins back. And um, um, it has a really different structure than the original. Um, the original kind of it starts out with Janet Lee, and then it pulls the rug out from under you by killing her about halfway through and then at about halfway through Anthony Perkins becomes the main character because um, you're sort he's sort of the only other character that you can um, um, co-conspire with at first it's like you're co-conspiring with Janet Lee and then you're co-conspiring with Anthony uh, Perkins to cover up Janet Lee's murder 
and um, but at the same time, he's still like the villain, you know. Although, you know, if you're if you're watching it for the first time in in 1960, you would have been even more, you would have been maybe a little more sympathetic, thinking that uh, he was just watching out for his crazy mother, and it wasn't really his fault. But um, Psycho 2 has this real interesting um, mysteries. It's it tries to be a mystery, whereas the first, the original Psycho wasn't really a mystery. It was. It was like a thriller with a really great twist at the end that turns everything on its head. Um, but this one is, uh, nor the scenario is Norman Bates is out of prison, uh, the mental institution, and he's trying to reintegrate into normal life. Um, and um, murders start happening, but you don't know if it's really him going crazy again or what until the ending and the ending is a you know tries to it's a big it's a big twist that turns everything on its head once again but um this is the kind of movie where you just watch it and you keep on guessing and i mean even though i remembered what the big twist was at the end um spoiler alert uh uh, Norman Bates's real mom was is uh, working at the same diner as him, and once uh, um, once uh, his new girlfriend and her mother oh her mother is Vera Miles by the way, who's Janet Lee's character's sister from the original movie. They got the same actress back. They're trying to drive Norman crazy, but there's an actual killer mother um, who starts killing people because they're trying to drive Norman crazy. Um, and like you, Norman is basically the main character, so you feel, you sort of feel for him. I guess it is sort of like the original in that you feel for him, you want things to go right for him because Anthony Perkins brings so much sympathy to the role like he does in the original. Um, but you're still kind of afraid of him because he could be the killer. And then when he start, when when the situation starts taking its toll on him, um, he puts the, his new girlfriend Meg Tilly into danger, because, um, well, yeah, I mean it's it's a real it's a real tricky, complicated script that keeps you guessing. And what I got out of it, watching it again for the first time in many years, was knowing the twist ending. It was interesting to sort of figure out what was happening and when, because the first time you see it you're in the dark with Norman. You don't know what's going on, and that's where the suspense lies. Yeah, I'd forgotten the twist ending. Um, uh. I, I mean, I remembered that it was Meg Tilly and her mother. and But that's like the twist before the twist. That's the twist before... Well, that's like the halfway... T that's the Janet Lee twist, we can call it. You know, it's halfway through about, you find out that it's them, and then... But mm -hmm. my problem with the twist ending is... Um, well, I mean, it's not a... <laughs> well, I mean, not even just before we get to the, the big problems with the twist ending. It's during the movie, there are these scenes where Meg Tilly, after revealing herself to Norman, after Norman starts to lose it, because through a lot of the movie, uh, the first half, he's really trying to be better. Yep. And um, when he starts to lose it, Meg Tilly sort of freaks out because she realizes she's sort of done this to him. And so she, um, she confesses, she confesses. And then, um, there's this scene where she confronts her mother and she tells her mother that she's not going to go through with it, that she's going to take care of Norman. And then 
she thinks the mother is trying to scare them in the house. Uh, there's a very long sequence with this, and she's got to tell Norman to go downstairs because she wants to stay upstairs because she doesn't want it revealed that it's her mother. And uh, the flip is, is it's not her mother. It's Norman's real mother who is, you know, trying to scare the crap out of Meg Tilly from messing with her little boy. And um, my problem with it is she's too tall. She's not tall enough. There's this scene where Meg yeah. Tilly's looking into the uh, bedroom, uh, in from the mother's bedroom into the bathroom, um, because there's this sequence where apparently Norman's mother, real mother, watches Meg Tilly shower. Kind of weird. Um, you're supposed to think it's Norman, but it's not, apparently. Uh, I think, though, on that one, if they'd made it Norman, sort of, you know, trying to confront his whole sexual repression thing. Well, actually, I assumed it was because she doesn't see who it was that was spying on her. Yeah, but I and, sort of assumed that... But then later, she it happens again, and it's definitely uh, Mrs. Spool that time. It's Mrs. Spool, and Mrs. Spool is a little old lady. She yeah. is not six and a half feet tall. That's she... not really the biggest plot, uh, problem with that plot twist, <laughs> but there is a, there's another scene where uh, she kills someone, and you see the... Um, the off-screen person's hand, and it's obviously a young per- a young person's hand, and not the hand of an old lady. So well, that's another instance. There's also the scene where she kills um, Vera Miles. Mm-hmm. She's enormous. I mean, it, you're <laughs> supposed to think it's Norman. It reminded me of um, what was that movie? The rat movie we watched, uh, where they keep making the rat bigger of than unknown, of unknown origin. Yeah, it's yeah. like that. They keep making the you know the they keep fiddling with the rat's size to make the scene believable. It's the same basic principle. They're, they're fiddling with it to make you think it's Norman and hoping that nobody's going to complain because it's such a, it's such a twist ending mm-hmm. um, that he's really got this other mother. And what's the thing about that ending. And I guess, you know, since we're talking about it, we should just get through it before we get to all the great stuff about Psycho 2, is that it sort of undoes a lot of Psycho 2's really cool stuff. Like the scene where Meg Tilly... Because what happens is... Um, who's, who plays the psychiatrist? Uh, oh, uh, Robert Loggia. Robert Loggia. And this great role. I mean, it's it's got to be one of his best straightforward roles. Um but and it's a it's a subtly great role too because he has to be like the one guy who uh, who trusts Norman who's in Norman's corner besides Meg Tilly, who isn't who isn't really being honest about her trusting him. Right, and so at the end, Meg Tilly at, is trying to freak Norman out because she's convinced he's gone nuts again, and so she's trying to you know smack yeah, dresses, him back into reality. Up, yeah, it actually lifts from um, from Friday the 13th part 2 actually. She dresses up it as his mother to uh, to talk him out of um uh killing her because Mrs. Spool is on the phone telling him uh, that he's got to kill her now. And so Robert Loggia grabs her cuz he doesn't know what the hell's going on. And she accidentally kills him. And so then you have this sort of long sequence um, that sort of seals Meg Tilly's fate. But you're watching the realization, like, dawn on her that she is so far into this thing, there's no way out anymore. And it just becomes this incredible tragedy. And um, 
Yeah, that's the other sad thing about the movie is that you feel bad for Meg Tilly, even though she's uh, complicit in, in the manipulation of Norman. And then it gets to the so end. Sad. So it's sad where she, when she dies, even though you know that, even though you, even if you've never seen the movie before, you can kind of probably guess that she's going to get it in the end. Yeah. Uh, well. Um, well, actually, not necessarily. But anyways, it's sad. it is sad when she dies. And then you have this ending where... Um, you know, Norman's setting a place at the table and he's kind of looking at the chair where she used to sit. And for a second, it's really touching because there's this regret thing going on only for you to discover that he actually was setting the place for his mystery mother. Who's going to show up, reveal the truth in a second. Then Norman, I mean, the one cool thing about that scene was it's not really clear why Norman kills her. I disagree. I think it makes psychological sense. You think he's killing her just to return to the norm? Well, yeah. I mean, that's that's how that's what they show. Once he's killed her, he hears the voice of um, his mother. You know, the mother, right, persona, the mother persona. Who is who is another who another actress that they brought back? They brought back the woman who does uh, mother's voiceovers in the original Psycho. He's talking to her. Because for at least a second, I felt like he was killing her because you know she sort of ruined his life. I mean, well, it, I think it, I think it, I think it can be both actually. Because I mean, it really is. That's really the sad part. Is is that um, it's certainly implied through the majority of the first half that if these people weren't screwing with Norman, mm-hmm. he probably would make some kind of a recovery. Maybe not a full yeah. recovery, but. Definitely some kind of recovery. I mean, Meg Tilly's character before, you know, it's revealed what she's doing to him provides a really nice stabilizing to him. And, uh, you know, he's it's yep. it's a very different kind of role. Because when we started talking about um, maybe doing a Psycho 2 as a good movie, I think it was because uh, I had read some interview with Tom Holland where he had just heard that Tarantino had said that he thought Psycho 2 was better than the first one. And right. Psycho 2 has got a lot of responsibility about, you know, insanity for a while that the first one doesn't because the first one can't because it's got to be about surprising the hell out of you with mm-hmm. Janet Lee getting killed. And so, I mean, Psycho 2 is really sensitive in a lot of ways and... yeah. It's really um... it it creates empathy for Norman first and foremost, and that's and that's something that continued through the uh, through the following sequels. That well, because they were because they couldn't have been done without Anthony Perkins' participation. His character gets uh, more well-rounded, and therefore more sympathetic treatment. Yeah, he's not he's not just you know driven insane by his homo- repressed homosexuality, as Alfred Hitchcock probably saw it. Yeah, and, speak, and speaking of, um, well, speaking of the origins of it, I mean, um, I think, I think, uh, I think, just like, um, just like, um, uh, what was it? Twenty ten, the year we make contact was made basically because um, the author of the novel had written a sequel a couple years earlier. Um, Hoping, hoping to get a movie sequel and some more uh, residuals. Um, uh, Robert Block, the author of the original novel, did the same thing, and um, 
Yeah, I think I think Black was a lot more explicit about Norman being kind of a repressed closet case, and in kind of the uh, the Ed Gein sense of um, wanting to become his mother for sex, maybe for sexual reasons more than uh, more than whatever. But um, yeah, I mean, the movie isn't really interested in the psychology of Norman and his mother, like why Norman um, has to be become his mother it it give it's much more of a given of like she he becomes his mother because actually they just don't go into it at all yeah, i mean it, it I does mean, it does take it does take the psychological approach but it it's not interested in the psychology of norman's character so much as the um the psychology of someone who used to be a murderer and is now trying to recover from it. Like, there's a scene where he's cut, he, he, he doesn't want to cut Meg Tilly's sandwich because he has to pick up a knife, and when he picks up the knife, he stares at it, you know? That kind of thing. Yeah, and um, that whole idea, I, I can't think of another sequel, especially a prolonged sequel, um, like this yeah, one. The one that's 22 years after the original. That it, um... Changes. I mean, just that the thing of him dealing with a character who was the villain in the first movie, turning into the um, hero of the second movie, or at least the victim. Because that's the thing. Is like he is the biggest. <laughs> People get killed in this movie, but because it's never Norman. Um, Norman is. But it's never—it's not Norman doing the killing, but nobody suffers more psychologically for these killings than Norman, and he's not even the one doing it. Yeah, and I mean that's kind of the thing about when the mother comes in at the end, and and it's a that's, return to that. Yeah, <laughs> that's sort of the most satisfying moment in the entire movie because Norman actually does kill somebody, and it's the person who deserves it most. Like he kills he kills the killer who's been killing people throughout the whole movie. And then instead of it being about Norman um sort of avenging his newfound friend, it, it sort of And that's kind of the problem is is that Meg Tilly sort of becomes the central character for the third act. Um because as as everybody's going as Norman's going nuts, um, she becomes the central character and um it's just not as effective as when it was Norman. Yeah, and especially when you're seeing it the first time and you don't know if if Norm well how nuts Norman is when he starts to go nuts again, uh, and he starts he starts talking about like it's my real mother doing the killing, and you're not supposed to know if that's for real or not, and then it is, which I'd uh, actually forgotten since the last time I saw it, but. Yeah, definitely. Then it's you're in Meg Tilly's corner because, okay. But talking a little bit more more about the inconsistencies, and then we should praise some stuff about it since it's the good movie. Oh, um, uh, I won't like, run out of that. Don't worry. Okay. Well, like um, Meg Tilly. Uh, what was I gonna say? Um, okay. Well, one more nitpick. I think this is a different nitpick than the one I was thinking of. But um. Why uh, Mrs. Spool kills Dennis Franz for being a jerk to her son for running the hotel, the motel, as a sleazebag motel. Uh, he kills Vera Miles because she's messing with Norman's head. Um, she asks Norman to kill Meg Tilly because she's helping mess with his head. Um, 
Why does she kill the uh, teenage boy and his girlfriend? Well, okay, I know why she kills them, because they sneak into Norman's basement to smoke pot, and you'd think they would not do that because it would have been big news around town that Norman Bates is coming home and that right. house isn't empty anymore. Um, not so much why does she kill them as, like, how come... Uh, well, the girl she, she kills this teenage boy, and then his girlfriend gets away, but then it's not, like, an issue that that there's a witness <laughs> that there's a surviving witness like you never see that teenage girl again even though she, there's a witness to somebody disappearing inside the Bates house so that's a big problem and um yeah that scene had to have been added just because this was 1983 and you had to have a, a certain amount of body countage um but uh oh the other big problem plot wise and then we'll start praising it is um uh if Vera Miles' goal was to was actually to drive Norman insane again, then what did she think was going to happen to her daughter in that house when Norman did crack again? Right, and well, she, that's why she, she has think, the little gun, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, and that's just ridiculous. But anyways, so good stuff. Um, Dean Dean Coonde shot this. I never knew that. Neither did I, and... Um... Franklin's direction of this is just, you know, there are these amazing shots at the end from uh, the top of the house. Mm-hmm. But it's yeah. almost like there's got to be a crane up there, too, just because of the the fluidity of the, the camera motion, just how far he goes with it. But it's just crazy how... Uh... Yeah, the, the house looks great. Dean Kundi helps it look great. And actually, a lot of the shots of the house are with a matte painting that looks fantastic. Oh, I didn't even know that. There's so, a really iconic... Oh yeah, yeah, yeah! It's so good you can't even tell. Yeah. And like the really, the really iconic image that the movie ends on, which they used for the poster of Norman standing in front of his house and his mother's shadow is in the window again, and it's just like old times. That's a that's a matte shot. I think that that's how they were able to have those like you know, rolling clouds in the background, and it looks really awesome. So yeah, I mean it's awesome. Dean Coonde, early '80s photography, great direction by Franklin. Um, and you know some nice, and you know, in addition to his own good direction, there's like there's plenty of little throwbacks visually to the original movie. Like um, he's car- when he carries the body of Mrs. Spool upstairs at the end. It's got the overhead shot, just like uh, just like when Perkins is carrying his mother, his other mother's corpse uh, upstairs at the end of the in in the original. So yeah, it looks fantastic first and foremost. Visually, it's just really striking. Yeah, and um, did do we comment? Did you mention uh, when we were doing uh, pre-show stuff that Jerry Goldsmith did the music? Or uh, yeah, have... yeah, I mentioned last episode. Yeah, he. It did... is the greatest Jerry Goldsmith score <laughs> ever. It's it's just a fantastic score. It it sounds it's like very, it. It's very sad. <laughs> it's a very sad. It actually sounds more like John Williams. It's like Jerry Goldsmith trying to do John Williams doing a star, uh, slasher movie or something. But I it mean, has all these it has all these melancholy piano themes that are just great. Yeah, I don't think Goldsmith uses piano much. And anything else, so that was kind of what was striking about it is, yeah, that it's just so sad, um, and it is really played as a tragedy for the majority of it, and it and it works, it gets away with it completely because, um, you know, Perkins, I think that um, if Perkins, if it hadn't had the twist ending, 
If it hadn't mm-hmm. had the setup, the return to status quo, the setup for another one, I, I think, and you hadn't had the whole um, real mother insanity thing. Mm-hmm. I really think that Perkins not like winning an Academy Award for this performance would be one of those, you know, big tragedies like when, you know, Paul Newman got snubbed for the verdict or something. You know, I mean, because I mean, Perkins performance to the majority of this movie is just utterly fantastic. I mean, it's just it's scary. Yeah. But <laughs> and what it's... a what a tall what a tall order to have to be scary and sympathetic at the same time, and that's and that's like he does he he does that amazing thing so well. Like I, there wouldn't have been a Psycho three or four if he couldn't have done that, and that's because that's exactly what he does in Psycho three and four. And I really love Psycho three. Psycho four is okay, but even in Psycho four, like he's still sympathetic and scary alternately when he needs to be, which is which is awesome. Yeah, I mean he's just. It's just a great performance, and um, you know he he got he spent the first part of his career doing romantic leading man roles, and then he did Psycho and sort of got typecast, and then he did some more eclectic stuff. Yeah, he went to Europe movie. and did some more art house type movies. But, worked I mean, with Orson. He was directed by Orson Welles, of course, in The Trial. I mean, this one is just, uh... yeah, it's people wouldn't have even acknowledged how good an actor he was, like if he hadn't done the Psycho sequels, because he always would have been thought of as, you know, Anthony, uh, Norman Bates. But by doing Norman Bates again and doing it well, that got people to realize that he was actually a good actor. Yeah, because I mean, the... because he, because because he could reintroduce and reinvent this character twenty two years later. Exactly, and and he can make him grow, and right. um, the movie opens. Um, well, it opens with a clip from. It opens with a shower scene. It opens with a shower scene, and then you move on to the courthouse as he's being released, and there's this petition for him not to be released, right. and at that but point. From... Handed in from Vera Miles. Handed in from Vera Miles, and at that point, it really doesn't. It, it it's hard. It's impossible to be in Norman's corner at that point, because he, <laughs> you know, he did chop up seven people, and I mean, this yeah. is kind of this is the fear that you know. And she's and she's saying no. And we're going to die, and, and you're, it's the beginning of Psycho 2. You know that more people are going to die because Norman Bates is getting out. It's Psycho 2. You just cut but, out since for like 30 seconds. Oh, well, I was just saying, um, like, she's like Sheriff Brody in Jaws. She's right. like the voice of reason. She's saying people are going to die if you let Norman Bates out. And of course, you know, people are going to die if Norman Bates gets out. It's Psycho 2. So, yeah, you can't be in his corner at that point. Oh, yeah. And so, and then so it has to build toward trusting Norman, toward being sympathetic toward him. Um, and and, that, and that's, sort of what, that's sort of what Dennis Franz is for, because he's turned, uh, he's turned the Bates Motel into a flop house, and, Norm, and Norman's like, I don't want any of these drugs around here, you know, I run a clean ship. And he, and he takes a job as a short order cook, and he's, you know, he's, being he's, a, trying. He, he's trying to be a contributing member of society again. And then um, that's when Mrs. Poole is introduced at the beginning. And what I can't figure out 
did Mrs. Poole leave the note, or did Meg That's Tilly? A- or did Vera, well, Vera Miles wasn't in there. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, I, that's the kind of question that you can probably, you probably have to draw your own conclusions because they don't give you any conclusive evidence, and that's what you, that's sort of what's, what's there to enjoy on repeat viewings, is one, is trying to figure that stuff out. My money's on uh, Vera Miles, I mean, uh, Meg Tilly, though. Yeah. Because at because, that point... I don't yeah. honestly believe that Tom Holland knew that he was going to introduce the mother at the end, or who it was yeah, going to be. Yeah, right. that's, r- that's because... right. That's so. Yeah, that's so true. He must have written it, you know, knowing that he, <laughs> not figuring out what the twist was going to be until the end. But he wanted. That's why the kind of contradictory stuff happens. Because there are other suspects throughout. I mean, there are people who act weird, a mm-hmm. little off throughout, and they're uh, tall enough to be the killer in those scenes we mentioned earlier. And uh, did this come out before or after the the Friday the 13th where it's the the driver? That came out after this, <laughs> I was, right? I, 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 was just, I was just thinking of that, actually. But yeah, it came out before. Yeah, oh, a long time before, huh? Yeah. A couple, couple of years, yeah, where the killer is someone who you saw in the first 10 minutes and didn't pay any attention to. But yeah, like the hotel clerk, I'm like, oh, I bet that's the killer because, you know, I'd totally forgotten who the real killer was. And of course, if it had been Vera Miles, if it, if she had been pushed over to the edge in her mm-hmm. pursuit of this, again, that would sort of take – because Vera Miles' performance slowly becomes histrionic. I mean, she's just mm-hmm. really freaking annoying at some point. And so when she finally gets <laughs> killed – it's, you know, it's not quite horrifying. I mean, it's just like, you know... <laughs> it's she, graphic, though. It's, kinda, it's, it's the kinda most the, graphic it's, thing in the movie. Yeah, it, it is sort of a Friday the 13th style kill. You see, Good. A, you see a knife go in her mouth and come out the back of her head. And I mean, that, you know, it has the double... I, I mean, because I remember, like, um, all the... You know, basically, in all the pre all the pre publicity for this movie was uh, talking about how classy it was and how it wasn't just a just another slasher movie. Even though slasher movies are probably the reason it got made in the first place. Yeah, and I mean, this is twenty two years after the original, and I I remember what a big deal people made about um, Aliens, and Aliens was mm-hmm. only what seven years after the original. And now right. extended periods between sequels are no big deal because it's just whenever the uh, major star of the movie's career has hit such a uh, such a lull that he or she has to return to something. I mean, it, you know, Pretty Woman mm-hmm. Two is probably around the corner, but um, yeah, no, I, I actually thought that um, for whatever reason, I was under the impression because you know, I growing up, you know, you have your movie book, and mine was the Malton. For whatever reason, I thought that. He didn't like Psycho 2, but he does. And he basically says exactly the same things we're saying about it right now. Yeah, I mean, it was well, it, it was well received. It made a lot of money. Um, you know, obviously, that's why there was a Psycho 3. But, um, yeah, it was a hit. And, um, you know, I think Universal probably only did it because they thought they'd killed Michael Myers off uh, for real in, in Halloween 2. <laughs> and... Um, and they needed to bring back uh, their other most famous slasher icon. 
Um, yeah, now it's not based on the book at all, right? I mean, that's the, the there is a Psycho right. 2, it's but yeah, it's, com- it's completely different. Right, it's compl- the Psycho 2 Robert Block novel, or Blotch, I'm not sure, is completely different. It's actually more exploitative from what I hear. It's more, I, I never read it, but I remember that the, um, that the cover jacket has like um, paper doll cutouts of, um, of mother's dress next to a paper doll cutout of like a woman in, in a brassiere, a naked woman's body. So yeah, the, the novels are actually supposed to be kind of trashy by comparison. Now, amusingly, have you ever looked to see what um, Holland and uh, Franklin followed this up with? Um, no. Cloak and Dagger, which is a kid's movie. Oh, Tom Holland did that, huh? Tom yeah. Holland wrote it, and, uh, yeah, Richard, yeah, Richard Franklin, Franklin directed it. I mean, Franklin, I, I I think I remember that he directed Cloak and Dagger, and what else has he done? I knew that he did, um, Road he Games. He hasn't directed, yeah, Road Games. He hasn't, he doesn't have a very long list of directing credits. No, and I mean, you know, at this point, those, he's... Those, he's you know, Psycho 2, Road Games, and Cloak and Dagger are probably his three most well-known or only well-known movies. He Road also did FX2. Oh, he did oh, FX2. <laughs> yeah, he did two, not one. And I can't remember anything about two except that it's uh, entirely it, – it's filmed in Canada and set in Canada. But I can't believe that this guy, nobody thought – I mean, nobody sort of rediscovered Richard Franklin – because I mean, I yeah. mean, the poor guy spent you know his last major credits where he directed a bunch of episodes of you know the Lost World TV series with Patrick Bergen. I mean, like the syndicated <laughs> Z uh, level TV show. But I mean, this is just uh, it's just incredible to me that he he isn't better known for it. Because you know the thing is, is that you know the first one it manages to. It doesn't match the style of the first one, and we'll get to that, the style of the first one sort of in modern filmmaking terms <laughs> in a little bit, but it, it it's so classy. It it feels like a... I didn't even realize it was um, two almost two hours long until I finished watching it because it just flew by. Oh, yeah, no. I mean, it, because you can't... Well, because, I mean, there's, there's constant suspense because of... Right. You know, either you're worried that Norman's going to start killing people or you're, you know, especially since I hadn't seen it in so long. It's like, well, does Norman lose it in the uh, diner that first time? Yeah, and, I mean, and who's who's doing the killing? Is it Vera Miles, maybe? Yeah, so, I mean, there's just constant building, uh, rising suspense. And then even the... And then I think some of the sequences are really uh, longer than they feel, like um, when Norman gets locked in the attic... Right, he goes into his uh, mother's room, and everything is as it was. And then, when he gets locked in the attic and led, a- he gets locked in the attic, and then that's when the killing of the kids happens. And that's when you know at that point it can't be him. Um, pretty sure it can't be him. And then when he comes out and he goes back downstairs, uh, yeah, the room is back the way it was. And then you find out a little later that was Meg Tilly messing with him. So, like, the movie sets up questions. It sets up, you know, it's like every scene they're setting up questions, and then as the movie goes on, some but not all of them get answered. And then there's the big twist at the end, which should explain everything, but it 
Yeah, it kind of explains 95% of things, and the other 5% is problematic. But it, I mean, uh, it's a it's a nice fix, and I I think the problem with it is is that it's it's cheap. I mean, it's the kind of thing you know we've already <laughs> well no we've seen it before we 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 just saw it in you know Halloween two they do the same thing mm-hmm. you know, it's essentially the same thing um, you're revealing it's something sh- else <laughs> to yeah. make an excuse for in Psycho two's case a setup for a sequel in Halloween two's case what you know f- six more minutes of running time on an 80 minute movie or something. I mean, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so at least it comes at the end of psycho too. Um, so there is so much good stuff to it and you can just be like, Oh, well, you know, that, that, that ending felt tack on and terrible, blah, blah, blah. And you can sort of yeah. dismiss it. It's not like, Actually, I mean, even I, I think the ending is one of the things people like the most about Psycho 2, and that's because even if it's a little hokey, it's um, it's shot so well. Like the interplay between Mrs. Spool and uh, and Anthony Perkins, and then that amazing shot where he clocks on the head with a shovel, and it looks like he really clocks around the head with a shovel. You cannot tell uh, you, where the cut is for yeah. the stunt man. Can you imagine what the set to that must have looked like, that scene? Well, just the movie in general, because he had to get the camera overhead in that yeah, kitchen there's a ton, set. There's, there's a ton of overhead uh, shots in the movie, which is neat. Like, they really, you know, they build these amazingly detailed uh, Bates house uh, sets and um, and just shot the hell out of them. Um, I'm looking at that scene now, and I, if you go through it frame by frame, you can tell uh, where the dummy gets stuck in. But, I mean, watching it as it is, you'd never, ever, ever see where they do that cut. It's pretty amazing. And then, and then of course, yeah, like you say, the um, uh, the camera cranes up, and we're, like, practically on the ceiling like a fly or something, looking down at uh, at the aftermath. Yeah, it's um. So that's there's also, great. <laughs> hold on, hold on. I do want to mention his his, his costume change. When Norman's Norman? Norman's when Norman starts to go again, like when you first start mm-hmm. hearing about the real mother. Oh yeah, I know you. I know you. The mean. turtleneck comes back. Yeah, the turtleneck from the original movie. It's like. All of a sudden, he's got the turtleneck very... on. Robert Lodgers <laughs> very... coming yeah, in. He's very like, very yeah. subtle. Uh, I don't know if it's that subtle. I mean, is it? <laughs> well, I mean that's kind of the thing. Is that the turtleneck? It's not like he go. It's not like he goes into his closet and finds yeah, he his doesn't. Old he doesn't take it out. But I mean, that's that's it. It keeps you on edge because at that point you still think Norman's going crazy. Or yeah. he's he's returning to his homicidal mania versus right. um, Mrs. Spool. Really, we got to talk about the the story before we go, though. That the, how they explain this. Mrs. Spool is Norman Bates's his Norman Bates's mother mm-hmm. was his aunt, right? And insanity runs completely in the family. Right. Both these sisters were insane. Uh, Mrs. Spool, who was 
Mrs. Bates' sister killed uh, Mrs. Bates' husband and uh, kidnapped Norman. Um, Wait, is that or, rad- or rather, one? or rather, yeah, it is. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm thinking of the third movie where they where they retcon the uh, the plot twist of Psycho Two back to normal. Um, but as far as we know, in Psycho Two, yeah, Mrs. Spool was Norman's real mother, and the woman he thought was his mother was his aunt, and his aunt raised him. Wait, they returned it to normal in the third one. I'm sorry, I was hoping not to mention that because well, I knew you were going to watch it again. I, I'm, I haven't actually seen the third one. I'm, I'm going to get I'm gonna, I, I Oh, oh you never now. have. Yeah. All right. Well, because no, well, that I'm was sorry. my thing. Because, uh, you know, a little bit of segue. Um, yeah. You know, I haven't sorry seen Psycho in a while, but uh-huh. I've seen the remake. And so I figure that the story they give about how when Norman's mother, father dies at age five, at Norman's age of five is when mm-hmm. he starts having problems. And then the mother has the affair when he's 13 or whatever. Well, that doesn't make any freaking sense with Mrs. Spool. Right. And so that was my thing. I'm like, that's just cheap. Come on. So I'm glad yeah. that they at least then... recognized it. <laughs> okay. Well, there's other reasons to, to see it. Um, the third one is written by Charles Edward Pogue of um, David Cronenberg's The Fly. And it's yes, really and good Dragonheart, stuff. too. Ooh. Yeah. Let's, um, don't, 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 don't forget. <laughs> well, don't make that mistake. But as, far, yeah. but, as far as the, but as far as the continuity goes, I mean, Psycho 4 pretends Psycho 2 and 3 never happened, so... Um, because it was written by Joseph De Stefano, um, of author of the original Psycho's screenplay. Oh, hold on. Last thing, I just want to, you know, mention that what's his face, Hugh Gillen, playing the uh, the sheriff. Yeah, he's great. He's great. I mean, he's got some really great scenes with Meg Tilly where he just does not mm-hmm. like Meg Tilly. And, <laughs> he's, uh, like the, he's like the sheriff of Maybury or something, who who has a soft spot for Norman. Yeah, I mean it's it's really cool. Um, they bring they bring they they bring him back in three, which okay, is nice. Cool. Okay, now getting on to Psycho. Right. So Psycho two, Psycho three, and Psycho four, the beginning, and Bates Motel, which didn't, which was a pilot and didn't have Anthony Perkins. Later, it's nineteen ninety eight, and Norman Bates is uh, Vincent Vaughn is coming home. Um, it's the Psycho remake. The much touted shot for shot remake and um the thing we both have stories about this yours is better but mine is that this was the first movie i saw when the multiplexes of america had introduced stadium seating and bigger screens so as i walked in i was like holy crap this is amazing no matter what this movie's like this is going to be an amazing experience um and then yeah but i mean i i remember i saw when i saw Psycho the remake I was you know I was I wanted to enjoy it because I certainly enjoyed the Psycho series as a whole having seen the sequels on TV a few times um and at the time I just you know forgot about it right away um but uh please tell your Psycho remake story Well I have multiple Psycho remake stories but I think the one you're referring to Yeah yeah uh so a friend of mine works in publishing, and uh, I get this, I think he emailed me this kind of story about how he was at some release party, and he got into this conversation about film with some guy who was there, and he started ranting and raving about what kind of idiot would remake Psycho, 
uh, <laughs> shot for shot. And later when he was, um, you know, selling books for the release, he got the guy's credit card and it, it said Gus Van Sant on it. So uh, <laughs> appa- I, I believe Gus Van Sant was polite as to that. But um, I think that from everything I've read, uh, he, Gus Van Sant sort of laughs it off now like he wasn't going around in 1998 saying this was going to be, you know, the greatest movie ever made. Um, mm-hmm. He sort of you know, is, is ignoring that. Um, and yeah. that, that. That sort of is the other thing I want to mention about this is that I think Psycho and that period of um, the proto-internet craze period of film. Um, yeah is when I really checked out of, of, of mains, you know, getting excited for even thinking I might enjoy some big blockbuster or attempted blockbuster. Cause this was the same time, uh, same sort of <laughs> Batman and Robin had come out. The nineties summer blockbuster era was definitely, well, it was like the close. Blair witch period too. When you had to listen to people talk about how Blair, Witch was real. I mean, it was the same thing, and you're just like, what are you st- – I mean, how stupid are you? And then it's like I, I knew this guy, and he was explaining Psycho to me, and he's like, well, this is Psycho for our generation. I'm like, what What are you talking – no, it's not. What? Like, it's trying to get you to go to the theater to, to see – it's it's a pseudo-art house experiment um, with this hipster indie cast. And, I mean, how many people in this movie were in Boogie Nights, by the way? Um, was the other thing I noticed watching it this time was that you mm-hmm. had three principles of Boogie Nights appear in Psycho um, and, and you know, three principles of Magnolia appear in it too. It's like Gus Van Sant <laughs> went through. Um, St- and sticking Robert Forster in is, is taking a page from Tarantino. Yeah. And then, well, the thing I can't find online now, and I didn't look that hard. I just looked at the trivia section. I think the Wikipedia page is they made a big deal in the um, when it came out that Vera Miles' character, now played by Julianne Moore, is a lesbian, which is not in the film at all, and it's also wow. not in the <laughs> in the like trivia section of anything. Because yeah, like Anne Hayes, who is a real life lesbian, and and honestly, the last time I tried watching this, I, I turned it off really fast. But, uh-huh. And I, I kind of feel bad now because I actually think that Anne Hage did a pretty good job. Um, All things considered, I guess, yeah. Yeah, I mean, just until, you know, I, I had some, you know, I mean, she did fine. It, I mean, the movie takes its turn for the worst when Vince Vaughn shows up in my... Uh-huh. Yeah. It, that's that's where it really proves that there is no psycho without Anthony Perkins. And And, I mean, Vince Vaughn plays it, I mean... He, he tries to play it like you know, like a nervous Nelly, like uh, like Anthony Perkins is, and uh, Vince Vaughn obviously did not grow up uh, the way Anthony Perkins did. He doesn't have, I mean, Anthony Perkins is thin. It's almost like the ca- that character has to be thin. <laughs> it can't be. Uh, it can't be like even a half. He's not even handsome the right way. Like Anthony Perkins is handsome, but it's a completely different kind of handsomeness than. Vince Vaughn, who's more like the frat boy, yeah, Cro-Magnon hunky, right? Right, yeah. His 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 eyes are real narrow together. Well, I mean, the other thing is, is remaking Psycho is um, 
I think the first time I saw Psycho, you know, I was, I was a kid, but mm-hmm. I didn't know that the mother was dead. I didn't know the secret. I mean, huh. I, I didn't know. Um, I was probably like 10 or something like that. So somehow I had missed that. It was before Psycho 4, which I think is okay. the one that really sort of, you know, in the previews would have totally explained everything to you about what was mm-hmm. going on. And so I didn't know. And so it, that's what Hitchcock's point was, is for the first 40 minutes, you don't know what's going on. And yeah, then you no find one, out. No one, no one will be seated after the movie starts. And, um, you know, even the previews of it was Hitchcock talking about it. Well, this the remake is, you know, the whole point of the remake is, it, you know, it's going through the motions with the Anne Hesh stuff, Anne Hesh stuff. It it has to do that to to stay true to its its constraint uh-huh. of being shot for shot and you know basically the same script and all that sort of stuff except Viggo Mortensen's ass in the third you know three minutes <laughs> and, in. A, and a and a and a couple of other things we'll mention later. yeah and um but the whole point of the remake is to get to it's like um what is it it's like any any remake it's like Friday the Thirteenth or it's like you know, the Nightmare on Elm Street one that's coming up, it's about getting to the monster. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, the first, like, the first quarter or whatever of the Nightmare on Elm Street remake is going to be watching um, Jackie Earl Haley without makeup, and you're just going to be waiting for him to be Freddy Krueger already. Yeah, Um, and that's what this is. Or, yeah, and I remember, yeah, I remember when I saw this with my friend when I was a kid, and he finally got to the shower scene, and it happened, like, turned to each other and said, okay, we can go now, you know? Well, especially after those inner cuts of of weird footage. Uh, yeah, I had forgot. I I forgot about that. Yeah, it's not exactly shot for shot because Gus Van Sant has to insert weird art house bullshit into um into the murder scenes. He has to insert flash cuts of like sheep on a road and a and a half naked woman on a bed wearing a face mask and and rolling a shot of rolling clouds during the uh, the shower scene. I completely I, forgot yeah, about this that. This is very like if if somebody had if you know Jerry Bruckheimer had remade Twin Peaks, <laughs> this is the kind of crap you'd expect <laughs> to see in it. And the thing is uh, yeah. is that, you know, Gus Van Sant's yeah, I, I mean I love Milk. I actually think he did a really good job with Milk, but the guy's a really lame director. Not not even in terms of composition or director direction of actors, just you know his ideas are really lame. Like he kind of ruined Goodwill Hunting, just by not mm-hmm. understanding not to, to make it the most saccharine thing you possibly could. I mean, you know, it's just like Psycho, is, and this is the you know Goodwill Hunting is why he made Psycho because he finally had. Uh, he didn't win Best Director, yeah, but I think he, could, he was nominated. He could, do, he could do whatever he want. He had the cred. He had the cred, and then Psycho ruined it. Just so like he... in, a, in, a, in a completely analogous uh, example of hubris, um, just like Peter Jackson got to remake King Kong after Lord of the Rings, and everyone hated it. <laughs> I thought people liked that. Anyway, whatever. Well, I mean... But, you know, but I, I mean, on that note, I mean, you know, in 1998, um, remakes were not common like they are now so people were more upset about this people actually picketed it and um 
it's like to ask the question of why do such a thing, you know, like why do such an art house indie experiment? The answer is ego. It's the same reason Peter Jackson wanted to do King Kong, and it doesn't have. And even though this was almost shot for shot, and King Kong wasn't, it's the same impetus of like. Uh, it's not enough that I've made it on my own name. I want to walk in the shoes of the filmmakers that I admire, and I'm, you know, I mean, for Peter Jackson, like, it's, you know, amping everything up to 11, but for Gus Van Sant, it was just, I'm going to direct the, the movie the same way Hitchcock did, and I'm going to, I'm going to get to have as much fun as Hitchcock did making Psycho, and everyone's going to love it anyway because I'm doing it exactly the same and people won't be able to separate um, Psycho from Gus Van Sant in their minds just like Peter Jackson will now forever be associated with King Kong like Dino De Laurentiis. So it's just, it's just pure, it's, it's just like the most outrageous act of uh, egotism you can possibly commit as a director. But the thing is, is and, that Doing a shot-for-shot remake of Psycho, it isn't even interesting in that the things he does update, because the script isn't really updated, and so... um, No, Joseph Stefano still has sole screenwriting credit. Yeah, I mean, they change, what do they say, they change some figures, and they drop some of the vocabulary, but... Yeah, oh, and they add... (laughs) They add sex. They add. I mean, the first movie was, um, you know, praised for introducing things like showing um, Janet Lee and her boyfriend in bed with Janet Lee only having her um, her underwear on. But in the remake, you hear other lovers from the other side of the wall having sex, and um, and in the moment that probably got some people to walk out of the theater. <laughs> if well, what am I saying? I mean, if you the ticket take the ride but when vincent vaughn masturbates uh as he's watching her in the shower it's it's the point of no return for respectability for the movie well especially because that sort of suggests i mean even even you know not even whatever the problem with that is is it suggests some sort of normalcy to norman's sexuality i mean he's a pervert but Mm -hmm. he's a pervert He's not, you know, some guy who's got a, who's wearing his dead mommy's panties. Mm-hmm. It's too normal. Yeah. It's yeah. actually way too normal for uh, yeah, it, Norman it, Bates. It, it, yeah, it, yeah, it humanizes him. Exactly. He, he's he's one of the freaking guy, he's one of the nerds in Porky's. <laughs> it turns him yeah. into the, one of the guys in Porky's. No different. I wish it had. I wish it had turned into Porky's. Like he stuck that his would... pecker through the wall. <laughs> I mean, that's like that whole thing. Like, uh, what is it? Something about Mary uh, pointed out that Ben Stiller's character was absolutely no different from any romantic leading man in the last 13 years of mainstream uh, romantic comedies, and then all of a sudden he becomes a stalker. Norman Bates spanking it to uh, looking through the peephole. That was totally cool in Porky's. Totally cool. And now all of yeah. a sudden he's a serial killer with a mommy thing. <laughs> now one thing that and I by, and by the way, when you finally do see him as mommy, by the way, he is it supposed to be scary? Because I think I remember 
the audience uh, laughing. It's in idiotic. It's awful. It's, I mean, it's it looks, just terrible. It's, it's hilarious, and it's not hilarious in the original Psycho because Anthony Perkins is has this completely crazed, psychotic grin on his face, what? and he's baring his teeth, what? and it's freaky. What's Vince Vaughn's he, best performance? I mean, I mean, <laughs> that's the other thing is is that as it's you know, Gus oh, Vance, five Christmases. <laughs> Gus Van Sant cast him because he was, you know, one of the, he was the zeitgeist at the time. You know, he'd been mm-hmm. in Swingers, he was in something else, Spielberg put him in Lost World, he was, you know, the indie guy on the rise. I mean, yeah. it's, you know, it's absurd, but there's so many better people he could have put in the role. I mean, that... It, yeah, how about Crispin Glover or something? <laughs> They say, I mean they, that would have that would have that would have been like a copy, but you know it's a yeah. copy anyways. <laughs> now, if you're gonna if you're gonna have Anne Hesh have short hair like uh, like uh, Janet Lee, you know. Now, um, I wasn't paying attention during the remake. Now, do you, the first one, the original Psycho, has the first ever toilet flushing? Yes. Does the remake have the toilet flushing? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Okay. Psycho um, Two note. Um, I like I like the uh, toilet backing up with blood scene. I think that's kind of the Psycho Two's homage to the toilet in the original, maybe. Yeah. But back to the remake. Um, back to the okay. So all right, let's see. And then the stunt the rest, casting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The the rest of the cast. Um, it was funny. I, you said in an email that um, <laughs> you were you were, you were kind of enjoying it until William H Macy showed up. I think William H. Macy is one of the more tolerable performances because he was kind of the only actor whom I wasn't, like, watching and wishing, making me wish I was watching the original movie because I couldn't really remember anything well, about Arbogast, the uh, the private investigator in the original. I think I'm thinking of, yeah, because I changed my opinion of him after his first scene. Um, okay. Because he has this scene with, um, okay, so... It's psycho, so there's a after Norman kills her, there's the scene of him standing by the lake and or by yep. the swamp, and then it cuts to uh what's his name? Sam Loomis. Mm-hmm. Um Hey Halloween reference. Um <laughs> in his shop and the sister shows up and whatever. And um And then William H. Macy shows up. And then in William hat. H. Macy shows up in a hat. And so I think the problem was is that okay, Viggo Mortensen's terrible in this movie, like to the point yeah. that you know I understand he's worse than Vince Vaughn. He's actually his history, worse than his Vince history Vaughn. with horror movies is so funny, like because he was in uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre: The Next Generation. No, that was Matthew before. McConaughey. Oh, no, no, that, yeah, he, uh, yeah, yeah. He was in uh, Leatherface. He was in Leatherface. Uh, the Texas yeah. Chainsaw Massacre three uh, before I mean, this. You know, this is pre. Um, Lord of the Rings too. So, mm-hmm. you know, this is still the period where Viggo Mortensen was very indie and everything. Mm-hmm. And, um, he's just, he's atrocious uh, to the point of, you know, it's, he, he's got like this Southern drawl. Yeah. He's doing a Southern accent. He's doing uh. a Southern accent. But then if you look at a map, Fairville, California, or wherever they go, is actually, yeah. uh, it's, it's by Monterey. So he moved from the south apparently to go work at his dad's hardware store up in up in northern California. But mm-hmm. I mean, it's just because I, I was like, wait, is it in Arizona? Because maybe you could get away with that 
idiotic accent there. But it's just this. Well, I, yeah. It's it this, opens in Arizona. But, it opens in Arizona. Yeah. But I, I was confused. I thought he, he worked in what some northern Arizona town. But, um, but he's bad. He's bad. And then Julianne Moore is just laughable. I mean, she's really just absurdly bad. Yeah, um, she's kind of she's kind of overacting to compensate for how small her part is. It's even smaller than Viggo Morganson's. And so when when I think what happens is when Macy shows up and Macy's sort of doing it straight versus whatever Julianne yeah. Moore and and I think that the clash just sort of made me you know throw out my hands and. Yeah, but then, you know, but then when he does his scene with Vince Vaughn, it's like, you know, Vince Vaughn isn't holding up his end of yeah. the scene because he's not Anthony Perkins, but uh, William H. Macy is holding up his end yeah, of the scene. Yeah, he does it's a like, really good job. It's like, it's like watching him uh, on the other side of the table in Fargo, like if he were the one asking the, the probing questions of the guilty party instead of uh, trying to deflect them. And the thing about the utter lack of chemistry between any of the... Um the characters because you know julianne moore and vigo mortensen aren't giving um performances where they interact with anyone they're sort of you know they're they're auditioning they're doing a state high school stage audition type <laughs> thing by themselves up there and so they, they there's no chemistry with anyone else so when julianne moore's like arbogast wouldn't do that you know he liked me i'm like why would he like you <laughs> why you know that's what and this is where the problem of um doing a shot for shot remake comes in is that you know it it worked yeah shots were chosen in the original movie like based on, on how they might have yeah based <laughs> on the performances the yeah right <laughs> and the other thing is is that i'm sure hitchcock didn't shoot straight from the script i've never heard that about him um i'm sure he looked at how his actors were working together and, and made decisions based on that. Well, you can't make other people fit into yeah, that mold. It's, it's I mean, such it's... a, it's such a simple, it's such a simple thing. And yet, you know what? I mean, before I, before we watched this, I was sort of thinking like, uh, maybe I need to reconsider this experiment because I, you know, I get so totally disgusted with every remake that comes out, even if it's something as minor and insignificant as like George, you know, remaking George Romero's The Crazies. Um, there's something kind of rever- reverent, not reverential and reverential about doing a shot-for-shot remake, and it's like if if remakes were all, sh- if all remakes were shot-for-shot, shot, it would probably encourage people to see the originals more and the move and also even if they were as bad as Gus Van Sant's Psycho they would have you know whatever they would have some kind of closer reverence to the original but whatever obviously obviously it doesn't work for the reasons we're talking about it can't it can't work well you can't you can't make a good movie it's just that I feel like well most remakes aren't good anyways so I mean, that's so kind what's of the, the difference. That's kind of the thing is that the remake has never been a. I mean, when remakes started, it was no big deal. I mean, you know, John Ford remade Three Bad Men. Um, mm-hmm. Hitchcock remade The Man Who Knew Too Much. And, and those are 
almost extreme things because they're the same filmmakers coming back to stuff. But you, you would have, you know, the Maltese Falcon was made three times before, two times before the mm -hmm. uh, the other one. It wasn't that big of a deal just because the output of films was so much greater. Uh, and I think that what Psycho sort of points out, and it, it, I think it's telling that pretty much every remake that went into production following the release of Psycho... I can't think of a single one that I like because, you know, I love Thomas Crown Affair, the remake, but that was already in product. They, they already had decided to make that before Psycho came out. But now it's like, yeah, it's like, you know, you're remaking the crazy. It's like <laughs> the people doing remakes will, are, are all saying we don't, we don't want to do Gus Van Sant's Psycho here. Well, it's not even that. It's that there isn't any reverence to the first one anymore. I mean, what's the point? I mean, it's oh, right. just, yeah. you're just amping up. Right. At this point, um, I'm trying to think of a high a remake uh, since 2000. Hey, that, I don't think I could think of one either off the top of my that head. That isn't a horror think... remake. That isn't, yeah. you know, uh, we're going to take a, you know, cult 70s slasher movie and, and remake it with the stars of, you know, some CW teen yeah. show. Yeah, I had a... Like I had a friend, I have a friend who who's a horror movie buff, and he has pretty good taste. And he said he liked the mo the remake of Black Christmas, but he hasn't seen the original, and I haven't seen the remake. But there's no way it could be good as Bob Clark's Black Christmas. Black Christmas is amazing, you know. Well, yeah, the only one I heard that was actually what is it? The uh, Last House on the Left. Oh yeah, yeah. I've no, heard I mean, I've good heard, things heard about that horror, one. Yeah, yeah, me too. And from horror movie fans, but I don't think any of them would say that, you know, if they could only save one from a burning building, you know, it would be the remake. Okay, so And by the and and about the effectiveness of copying stuff shot for shot, I mean, something else I remembered from my screening uh with this movie. I'm actually surprised how much I remember just from this one screening, but um uh some girl in the audience did scream. There was one effective scare when uh when Mrs. Bates uh, kills Arbogast on the stairs. Okay. She walks out all of a sudden. Because that's such a good shot. Yeah. It's kind of like, yeah, you can't fuck that up. But then, of course, as it, Willie H. Macy is falling down the stairs using the same hokey rear, rear projection uh, of the stairs. Yes, yeah, Van Sant has to, has to insert flash frames of art house crap. Um, yeah, I want to get... I don't want to skip the whole uh, trying to use old film techniques. I but remakes. Um Assault on Precinct thirteen, the remake. I mean that I think you know, it doesn't compare at all to the first one, but it's totally different in a way. It, it, you know, premise remakes I think are kind of the way to go. And it seems mm -hmm. like we they don't either they don't do that or I don't know. Anyway, so Getting yeah, to well, the rear screen projection, uh, not just in that scene, but also with uh, the driving, uh -huh. with uh, Janet Lee, and just the film techniques with James Ramar as the highway patrolman, the oldest highway patrolman, I think, that um, you could find. And I love James Ramar, too. I mean, he's a good choice in that he has a very distinctive voice, and if you're going to shoot him the entire time in his... Um, sunglasses he still has some personality to him but Van Sant 
you know, in, in the stunt casting, um, I didn't even mention, I, I, I wanted to talk about that too. At the beginning of the movie, uh, Rita Wilson shows up and Tom Hanks' wife, who uh, okay. she's basically doesn't really act anymore. She did in the eighties, but then she sort of stopped to take care of their kids and so every time I see her, well, it's Tom Hanks' wife. It doesn't actually, I mean, she doesn't register as anything else. It's stunt casting. And then Ron Howard's dad as the boss, it's stunt casting. And I mean, it, sure, it's it's quasi-indie stunt casting, but it's still freaking obnoxious. Um, yeah, Philip, Philip Baker Hall is, uh, is that oh, the yeah, one the, there? Oh, yeah, the... Uh, Another, another, uh, a, a PT, PT Anderson, Anderson favorite. Yeah. And, um, I like James LaGrosse as the car dealer. Yeah. Well, I mean, that haircut alone. I mean, <laughs> well, and that's, he, he's, he's, he replaced, um, Michael uh, Baldwin and, uh, in Phantasm 2, also a universal picture 10 years earlier. He's quite good. Yes. But, um, it's, any other stunt casting we should mention? Uh, well, Robert Forrester does the uh, does the psychiatrist explanation at the end that so many film critics started making fun of after Pauline Kael called it uh, Hitchcock's worst scene. And that actually is uh, um, new to the film. That wasn't in the book. Something there was other some other explanation sequence in the book, but um, I'm trying to think. Um, was there any other stunt casting? There oh, really... Flea is in it. <laughs> Flea's, I mean, that's actually one of the less, I think this movie could get away with, what's his face? <laughs> Henry, uh, crap, what's his name? Henry. As who? Not Henry, the, uh, what's his name? Henry Rollins. Better than it could, um, for me, Rita Wilson. Because, I mean, it's an unbelievable role. I mean, they got Rita Wilson playing a newlywed who's supposed to be, like, 25. Yeah, it's goofy. And it's the other thing. I mean, the costumes are all goofy. You know, because they're, they're, they're trying to... Yeah, there's something, yeah, something kind of strange about the costume design now that you mention it. They're, they're trying to go for a quasi-retro feel. But it's more, it's more like the clothes that hipsters nowadays would wear to be retro cool. Which, which raises the frightening possibility that... Psycho, the remake, will someday be dis- be discovered by a bunch of hipsters who just think it's <laughs> who just think it's great, um, <laughs> and that sort of thing. Maybe. And um, it, it it'd be hard to believe because you know I think Gus Van Sant sort of lost his hipster following um, in some ways. Yeah, he made. Yeah, he made a he made a movie about a freaking skateboarder who kills a security guard and and nobody paid attention. <laughs> well, actually, another funny Gus Van Sant story was uh, in grad school. I had this one class where the uh, instructor let in a bunch of undergrads. He let in three undergrads just because I don't know he was trying to torment the rest of us. Uh-huh. And uh, one of them was talking about how oh he's got to see elephant you know and uh, which I think uh-huh. is Gus Van Sant's Columbine movie. Yes. And uh, 
she's like explaining it to him, and he's like, oh, so it's like every other Gus Van Sant movie. She's like, no, no, no. He's like, no, you're just describing every Gus Van Sant movie to me right there. It's like every other Gus Van Sant movie. And it was just, you just totally shut her down, like writing off mm. Gus Van Sant. And oddly, Gus Van Sant actually cameoed in Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back as himself. Yeah, as as the butt of a joke, and it's kind of like in what universes? I mean, you know, if Steven Spielberg were in that, as, part, as if as if as if he hadn't sold out already, yeah. and the joke is about how he's selling out. Yeah, I mean, it's just um, well, especially Finding Forrester, um, which oh, that was him, no shit, that was him. Wow. And uh, my friend was like, "Oh, I'm gonna go see it," and I'm like, "Dude, Matt Damon showing up in the last scene in an uncredited cameo." Because it's, it's Gus Van Sant's redemption project after Psycho. He's like, no, he won't. And I get this call later. He's like, man, Matt Damon showed up in the last scene. I'm like, of course he did. Come on. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, the Shot for Shot remake, it's just... It's a boring idea. I mean, it's it's kind of cool. Well, I mean, this is essentially, if you took, what is it, the MTV Movie Awards do this, right? Only to kind of different effect. They do the same they thing. Shoot, they shoot they shoot parodies. They shoot parodies. I mean, this is like a parody without a joke. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you said it. Um, a yeah. minor quibble um, that I wanted to mention is that I didn't remember this from when I saw this back in 98, but I can't believe they, they redesigned the Bates house. I mean, if, if there was one thing they should have copied from the original, it shouldn't have been, like, the Saul Bass opening titles. It should have been the freaking Gothic Bates house, for God's yeah. sake. Because because this house looks like, I don't know, the house in the Michael Bay Texas Chainsaw Massacre yeah. or something. That's what I was thinking, too. Because um, you, know, you don't really even see the house until Julianne Moore is going into it. And um, and the interior is the same, or at least the the front hallway is. Yeah, but, stairs are so that they can replicate the murder on the stairs. And you know, when you see the kitchen, having seen Psycho Two just before this, I'm like, hey, they got the kitchen right. It looks like Psycho Two. Um, the only thing Gus Van Sant could do cool is if if he made re- if he remade Psycho Two and Three shot for shot in ten years, <laughs> that might not. Oh, you know, I might. You know, like whatever. Come on, man. He, Bring it on. He's not that, yeah, he's not that committed. <laughs> but, uh... This was a lark. Oh, so, yeah, the house. I mean, it's like... It's... I, I assume one of the reasons they did it... Because the house is in Universal Studios... Hollywood or Florida, right? It's Hollywood, Hollywood, yeah. and so whenever they shoot a Psycho movie, they had to take that into account that they had to, you know, block certain things and, you know, mm. mat it obviously. And maybe they you were, couldn't, you couldn't see it from the other side. <laughs> Cause then you would have seen the tour, the tour tram going through. So, I mean, maybe that's because I couldn't actually find anything about the house, um, being in the decision-making process to change the house. And, um, yeah, it, it becomes just a scary house, like either out of whatever one of these remakes or uh you know judge judge dread some lame thing like that i mean it's just it, what, it, what? judge dread yeah and judge dread he ends up in the wastelands oh okay it, it reminded me of that i mean it just 
I feel like um, shot for shot or not, by shooting it in color, um, Van Sant sort of missed the point of being able to fix the audience's attention on something. Yeah, that's true. I hadn't even even thought about how much the original movie needed to be in black and white to be scary. Yeah. So, um... And then then it's interesting how Psycho 2, it's like, well, Psycho 2 has the great uh, Kundi photography, and that sort of compensates. And then um, the way Perkins shoots Psycho 3 is a lot like an Argento movie or a Toby Hooper movie. It's really artsy kind of color choices and really unnatural colors and stuff. So each Psycho movie has kind of its own look, except for Psycho 4, which is just a TV movie. Right. Um, But yeah, we, again, I don't know if we talked about this pre-show or if we actually mentioned it. You know, the idea that if this had done well, what would have happened? And Uh, um, There would have been more shot-for-shot remakes? Well, right, but I mean, just think about what would have actually gotten remade. I'm pretty sure Universal would have exploited everything they could have. Oh, so, well, actually, speaking of Universal and exploitation, um, I was thinking about this. Uh, there's there's news now about Jaws getting remade, and I, I was trying. I'm trying to think about like you know how, what are the what are the straws that break the camel's back here on remakes, um, since most people don't know that remakes are remakes. Um, I think it's Jaws. I think Jaws will probably inspire some of the same ire that the Psycho remake did back in '98 because it's sort of our generation's or a later generation's equivalent of Heresy, like the one movie that's so perfect you can't remake, even though it's an old movie. Seriously, um, they want to remake Jaws? Yeah, in 3D. <laughs> they already Very, made a Jaws 3D. Yes. Yeah, well, it, it's universal. They have no shame. <laughs> but but I think I think I think that's I think that is you know maybe it's just rumors and hearsay. But I mean I won't be surprised when it does happen. I think it's kind of an inevitability. Um, and I, you know, God, maybe that I mean that could be a shot for shot remake. But or rather, it would have been if Psycho '98 had been a hit. Wow. Um, well, no. It's is it a remake or is it a relaunch? Because we have to. You know, Psycho is pre the relaunch, which is that, you know, they're relaunching Alien with a prequel. You know, they're relaunching The Thing with a prequel with a bunch of soap stars playing Norwegian scientists. I mean, that's like the new thing. And oddly, The Thing's prequel or relaunch is universal. I mean, that's kind of the thing is, is it's, you know, you, you, you exploit your catalog to make as many properties as possible. And, um, yeah. Um, but, there, there was news today that, uh, Martin Scorsese is going to remake taxi driver with Lars von Trier or something. It's not confirmed yet, but, um, that's just a rumor that happened to come up today. Uh, speaking of remakes, starring, um, Starring De Niro again. De Niro again, and I mean, this is the thing: is that um, wow. And you know what? I mean, a Taxi Driver remake by Lars von Trier 
if he shot it, you know, like on a stage with everybody running by De Niro, that might <laughs> with, no, with no with no sets, no <laughs> sets like except the taxi style. cab, except the taxi cab. I would uh, actually see that. I mean, you know, me I mean, too. there's there's an actual experiment of some um, interest, but yeah, I mean, it's been twelve years now since the Psycho remake came out. Vince Vaughn has recovered. Um, he is now in every freaking yeah. movie in the world. Um, Anne Heche went psycho for real. And, you know, her career, I think she ended up on TV for a while. But every time I see an Anne Heche movie from this period, I'm kind of like, you know, she's really good. Like, it's kind of too bad she didn't really work out as a as a movie star. Yeah. Cause, yeah, actually, everybody in this movie pretty much bounced back. Moore, Mort- Mortensen, Macy, um, Robert Forrester's career didn't get resuscitated by Jackie Brown, unfortunately. And that was, this was post Jackie Brown. So yeah, this it was, was one year after. That, yeah. 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 In his, his sort of thing. Yeah. Well, I think that that's kind of the joke of Robert Forrester is that for whatever reason, no one will ever appreciate him <laughs> regardless <Yeah>. of whether <laughs> or not they should. I mean, it's just like how it's like you see Robert Forrester stuff from even his crappy stuff from the eighties. And you're just kind of like, how can nobody have noticed this guy? Yeah. Um, any, I mean, I actually would say that he, his scene in this movie actually sticks with you regardless of, you know, mm-hmm. whether or not the scene is, is any good. Um, mm-hmm. it really does. It sticks with you because he, he, he's able to come in and sort of turn in it very much like James LaGrosse is able to turn in this, you know, really quick cameo, extended cameo, really, uh, with a lot of quality. Um, and then the movie ends of course on Norman in the, uh, cell. Yep. And the mother, uh, speaking now he's totally gone over to the mother and in, in the remake, it's just, it's completely trite and silly because yeah. And Gus Van Sant even overplays the, um, the, uh, image of the skeleton over his face. In the original, it's supposed to be kind of subtle, and in this one, it's just, bam, it's there. See, I think the thing is, if he'd actually just remade Psycho, not done it shot for shot, if he just remade it, yeah, there's a chance he could have done, you know, some kind of dumb fun. Because you can't, you can't repeat Psycho. I mean, it's too singular of it of an experience. You can't, and there's not like there's a lot there to um, mine in a lot of ways either, because when you yeah. start examining, um, you know, when you get into whether or not Norman, well, obviously in the as, remake, as Psycho Two proves, all you really need is uh, is Perkins, right? And so, I mean, that's kind of the thing is. Van Sant didn't take that into consideration, whereas uh, Hitchcock, who's famous for always saying crappy things about his actors, <laughs> yeah. never miscast a, a movie, um, with the exception of The Birds, I mean, I would say. Mm. He, he did a pretty good job. Well, and I mean some of the later stuff, but, you know, it is prime. He always had the right actors, and certainly Anthony Perkins was the right actor in the first one. 
So... Does that about do it? Uh, the music... Is there anything to say about that? Nah, it's and Danny Elf. You know, they could have they could have just used the exact same score, but they wanted to give Danny Elfman some money for reconducting it or whatever. Um, and then over the credits, there's this weird instrumental improvisational version of the theme with 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 filter effects on it, which might be listenable on its own sometime. But uh, oh, I wanted to mention that. Um, you know, right at the beginning of this, we talked about um, the influence of the internet on movie hype, and um, in researching this, I was astonished to find that Universal's um, promotional Psycho remake website is still online. No way. Um, yes way. You can send someone a uh, a promotional e-postcard of the crappy New Bates Motel. <laughs> really? Um, yeah, let me see if I can uh, look it up here real quick. Oh, wow. oh my god, yeah, Psycho. Psychomovie.com, no shit. And, okay. And then and then and then and then even more incredibly than that, because I was uh, <laughs> because I was amazed by that. I thought, I wonder if the Mars Attacks promotional website is still up. And holy cow, it is. <laughs> They're still Warner Brothers is still promoting Mars Attacks uh, all these years later. Well, think about how bomb. big that website's got to be. I mean, it's probably about. Yeah. Right, right, right. But it's just like you can go back and look at what web design, arty web design looked like for psychomovie.com. Oh, and... wow. You can get the five frames per second psycho preview. Oh, wow. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, so that's... So for more, for more information about the psycho remake, go to www... <laughs> go to http colon backslash backslash www.psychomovie.com on the World Wide Web or AOL keyword psycho movie. What's because really it's 1990, because it's 1998 still. That, what's really sad about that is is back in the uh, like 95, I think uh, mo- uh, theaters or studios would put out like interactive press kits that everybody could download off of AOL. I think it was. And those were pretty cool because I remember having that. And it, I mean, it'd just be the most inappropriate stuff. Like you'd have a, you know, Die Hard Three game where you like snipered people or something. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, and they they unfortunately got rid of all that stuff. Oh, but, yeah, um, yeah, flash games yeah, for movie promotions. Those yeah. were great. Mart the Mars Attacks website. Had, that's why I wanted to check it out again because you could play like Zap the Humans or whatever. Okay, so. Psycho, the remake, um, actually not as bad for some of it as I thought it'd be. Um, some of it's certainly better than the Wolfman remake turned out to be. Also by Universal, who I think, um, a- after going from being a studio, I think that managed some respectability till about 1994, 95-ish really has become the worst freaking studio <laughs> on the face of the planet. I mean, it is just, they just suck. <laughs> I mean, just regardless. I mean, they, they from the studio that brought you Jurassic Park 3, you know, you're screwing up a movie where people are running from killer dinosaurs. How do you do that? Universal Studios. Um, and also, last thing, uh, last nasty thing about Psycho the Remake, mm-hmm. Imagine Entertainment produced it. Um, that's Brian Grazer and, and Ron Howard. And this is actually uh, 
interesting because it's from the period where Ron Howard became uh, sort of went from being an eclectic mainstream director and doing weird ish stuff like the paper and ransom to being the guy who did the freaking Grinch and the Da Vinci code. I mean, you know, regardless of whether or not he's going to be able to redeem his long-term career with Frost Nixon, which is, you know, this incredibly boring movie that it's, you know, mainstream movie, but yeah, imagine entertainment went from being the kind of good mainstream production house at this point, before this point, to being the crappy mainstream production house. You know, the guys who give Akiva Goldsman work. So, um, that too. They suck. But, um, yeah. Yeah, it's, um, wow. But Psycho 2, definitely. Everyone should check it <laughs> yeah, out. Everyone should check out Psycho 2. And if you um, like that, check out Psycho 3. And if you really haven't satisfied your hunger for psycho check out psycho for the beginning because it's okay it's yeah. not great but it's okay and, and you know what else you can check out you can check out this movie directed by alfred hitchcock called psycho <laughs> uh, that, that's crazy idea that you could check out this movie <laughs> but uh you could do that yeah yeah um and uh so for next time next time we've got um another kind of <laughs> I don't know. I don't even know if it's infamous, um, but it it always gets brought up when James Cameron trivia is brought up because it, <laughs> it's Piranha 2: The Spawning, by the James Cameron, um, and it has flying piranha and in a weird act of uh, coincidence, um, later this year there's going to be a piranha movie in 3D. After the same the same year that James Cameron uh, reinvented the 3D movie or whatever, but yeah, that's our bad movie, Piranha 2: The Spawning, 1981, James Cameron, and our good movie is Gosford Park, uh, one of Robert Altman's last movies, uh, one of his last big sort of popular successes, I guess, um, and it's sort of a uh, really British murder mystery um, type thing and you haven't seen it before right nope okay so yeah that'll be interesting because i i mean i saw it in the theater so is it as twisty as psycho 2 it is not as twisty as psycho 2 um but there might actually be more foreboding than in psycho 2 and it's altman dealing uh sort of inner um interacting with how foreboding works um in a mm. thriller and sort of cool. uh, responding to it. So well, that's going to be yeah. cool. Um, yeah, I love me some Altman. And uh, that's actually our second Altman, right? Yeah, we, we watched California, California Split. Split. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and this is our first Cam- – no, it's our second Cameron. We did T2 a long time ago. Um, wow. Well, might yeah, have I been our first – it might have been our first one. Or second or something. Or second, I remember yeah. Carpenter was our first. Yeah, wow. That was a while ago. So, all right, we're, we're coming for you, Cameron. Now wait, out. hold on. Is was the spawning in 3D though? No. No, no, no. Even though it was in, it was close to that era, early 80s 3D horror. No, it was. Um, nope. Um, nope. But it does. It does contain the Cameron's trademark weird obsession with motherhood. So you have that to look forward to. And Lance Henriksen's in it. Yep, and Lance Henriksen. Yep. With so. more hair than usual. So. Yep. It's something to look forward to. It's Cameron for sure. And then uh, after that. 
We gotta oh, plug yeah. it. Is that is that gonna be? Uh, We're gonna do that directly after it. We're gonna okay. Yeah, we gotta All right. do it. So, so uh, episode after next, just in time for Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland three freaking D. We're watching uh, Batman and commentating on it. It's gonna be another commentary track. Yeah. It's gonna be two of of talking about how it's better than the Dark Knight. So it's gonna be great. Hundred twenty six minutes. Can't forget uh, that. The for, or 127. First three Batman movies are all the same length. 127 minutes. Anyway, so there you go. Batman nerdity yep. from before it was cool. Um, okay, so again, yep. Psycho uh, 2. Go see it. Yep. Um, and, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> all right. <laughs> go watch and if anybody, every... if anybody has a what? soundtrack to Psycho 2, I want that. Oh. Yeah, I think I could find that for you. Anyhow. <laughs> okay. Um, so, this has been an Alan Smithy podcast. I've been Matt. And I've been Andrew. And thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of the Best of Alan Smithy Podcasts. This is Anne Benton. Good evening.